Well, it's already been a good morning, and uh, I'm grateful to be sharing this portion of it with you guys today as we uh, get to continue our study through the book of Ruth. And so if you have your Bible today, I want to invite you to take it now and open it up to Ruth chapter 2. Ruth chapter 2, that's where we're going to be today. Um, if you don't know where Ruth is in your Bible, uh, that's okay. Um, you, obviously, in the opening pages of your Bible, you probably have a table of contents. You can just grab that and use it if you need to. It's the eighth book in the Old Testament. Falls right in between uh, the books of Judges and 1 Samuel. So you can turn there. And as you're turning there, let me just share a few kind of interesting facts about the book of Ruth that uh, I kind of discovered over the past couple of weeks as I was doing my prep for this sermon series. So first interesting fact about Ruth. Here it is. It's, the, it's, it's one of only two books in the Bible with a female name, right? With a female title. So we have Ruth and we have Esther, both ladies used mightily of God for his purposes uh, to be laid out through his people. Um, the second interesting fact about the book of Ruth is that it's the only Old Testament book named after a non-Jew, right? So this is the only one. As we talked about last week, uh, Ruth is not a Jew. She's a Moabitess. There's actually one book in the New Testament also named after a non-Jew. That's the book of Luke. But uh, in the Old Testament, we have Ruth, not a Jew. And in the uh, third interesting fact is that it's the only book of the Bible to be named after an ancestor of Jesus, which uh, we talked about last week as well, that as we look through the, the family lineage, that Jesus actually came from the line of uh, Ruth. And so interesting facts. Now, I have to admit that was nothing more than uh, time filler. There's nothing important about those facts other than they're just interesting. I wanted to give you enough time to find the book of Ruth in your Bible, okay? So now that you found it, let's get into chapter two, and we are going to um, see what the Lord has for us in this chapter of scripture. Now, before we even get into chapter two, let's just quickly recap what happened in chapter one. So we have to remember that the book of Judges took place, the book of Ruth took place during the time of the Judges. Um, during that time, there was a great famine in the land surrounding Israel, the region of Judah. A man named Elimelech, who lived there with his family, decided to move them outside of Bethlehem and Judah and to go looking for food in the land of Moab. Now, again, as we talked about last week, Moab was a sketchy place. It was uh, a place with a sordid past, with roots that were very sinful. Uh, it was a place where the Moabites and the Israelites um, regularly had conflict with one another. And so Israelites tended to avoid the Moabites. Yet here, Elimelech is taking his family there. He's taking his wife, Naomi. He's taking his two sons, Malon and Kilion. And while they go live in Moab, chapter one told us that his two sons actually married Moabite women, which was kind of a big no-no according to the law of God for, uh, for the Jews. Not because God is opposed to interracial marriage, but because God didn't want his people to be unequally yoked with unbelievers, right? So these two boys took Moabite wives. Now, eventually, Elimelech died, leaving his wife Naomi behind. And then also eventually, his two sons died, leaving their wives behind. The wives' names were Orpah and Ruth. So the book of Ruth begins by introducing us to these three widows who are trying to have to figure out how to do life now as widows together. So um, as the story unfolds, Naomi hears that her people back in Judah, um, that the famine is over, they have food now. So uh, she decides after 10 long years of being away from them, she decides that she's going to head back to her homeland. At first, her daughters-in-law decide to go with her, but along the way, Naomi realizes how hard it's going to be for them as Moabite women to go with her uh, amongst the Israelites and then to try to find an Israelite man who's, 
you know, willing to marry a Moabite woman was going to be very rare. So she actually says to them, it's going to be very hard with, with me if you come with me. So go back to your homes. Well, Orpah decides to turn back and she returns to Moab. Whereas Ruth, um, she does the opposite. She clings to Naomi. She stays with Naomi. And that's where we read those beautiful words that we're all very familiar with. The words um, where she says, you know, uh, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so we have these two widows now leaving Moab, heading to Judah. And when they come into town, the people from Bethlehem, they start to remember Naomi, right? They look and they say, wow, she's back. Naomi's back. And when they start to say her name, Naomi kind of cuts them off and she says, don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. The name Naomi means pleasant. The name Mara means bitter. And she goes on to explain that she believes that in her heart that she has become bitter um, in, in the sight and in the, um, bitter in the Lord's eyes and that he doesn't want anything to do with her because of all the hardship that has befallen on her. And so we really start to see that she is kind of feeling like, like, uh, like she's become bitter to God. And in her own heart, she's starting to get bitter at God. Right? And we, we talked about this last week. We said that some of us can go through seasons of life where we can really start to feel bitter toward God. And that there's an immediate connection point. But the, the big takeaway from last week as we studied chapter one was this. We said, look, when you're tempted to be bitter at God, remember that he's always doing something better than you can even imagine. Because as we look through the life of Ruth and as we talked about last Sunday, we said that God was working through Naomi to get to Ruth, and Ruth would marry a man named Boaz, who we're going to meet today in chapter 2, and Boaz would be the great-grandfather of David, who would become the shepherd king of Israel, and David would be the ancestor of Jesus, right, who would be the great shepherd king of his church. So when you're tempted to be bitter at God, remember that he's doing something better than you can imagine. That was last week. Now, that's what we covered in chapter 1. Today, we're going to get into chapter 2. And here's how I want to walk through chapter 2 with you. Um, like always, I just kind of want to work straight through these 23 verses in this chapter. Lord willing, make it all the way through. I want to make several teaching points and observations as we go. I'm going to touch a little bit more today on practical issues like biblical manhood and womanhood and relationships and marriage and those types of things. And then we're going to end with some personal takeaways for us. And I hope that you leave here today seeing how this really wonderful, short, Old Testament love story actually begins to point us to Jesus and the redemptive purposes that God um, has for his people all throughout history. So we'll see that together. So let's get into chapter two. Look with me at verse one. Verse one says, now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. So here we have the first mention of this man, Boaz, right? Remember, this is a love story, and here comes the guy, right? He's on the scene now. And it says about Boaz that he's a worthy man. Some of your versions might say that he was a wealthy man, or it might say that he was a man of standing. Whatever we see, we're, you, know, you know that he's an important guy. He's got some level of influence. You're going to see as we go through the chapters together that he's a God-fearing, godly man. Um, and we see here also that he is from the same family clan as Elimelech, Naomi's dead husband. So what this means is that uh, Boaz is obviously an Israelite, right? Which is contrasted over and over again with Ruth, who is referred to as the Moabite. So look with me at verse 2. It says it very clean, plainly once again. And Ruth, the Moabite, Right, they keep bringing up this fact over and over again. 
the fact that she's not an Israelite, she comes from the people who were anti, uh, and, you know, they were enemies of the Israelites. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go my daughter. So, you know, right away, we have to um, just stop and give a little bit of respect to Ruth because think about Ruth's situation. She has lost her husband. She lost her brothers-in-law. She lost her father-in-law. She left her hometown. She left her family. She left her friends. Now she is left only with her mother-in-law and they need food. And so in order to get food, what does she decide to do? She decides to go out into the fields and glean. Now, gleaning is kind of an old-fashioned term. Not many of us really talk about it. Maybe most of us might understand what it is. Some of us may not. So let me just quickly tell you what gleaning is. Gleaning is an action that happened after the reapers had gone out into a field, taken their sickles, collected the harvest of any given crop. And after the reapers were done collecting, you know, they, uh, th- those who were in need could come in behind them and pick from whatever sort of crops were left there. So that was a, a common practice for the Jews, um, especially for the poor and needy among the Jews. And it was also a practice that God commanded um, Israel to allow foreigners and sojourners to participate in. Um, in fact, it was commanded by God to specifically leave those portions for the poor and for the sojourner, people who were not from their country, people like Ruth. Right? We can read about God's commands um, about reaping and, and that type of thing and gleaning uh, in the books of Deuteronomy chapter 24, in the book of Leviticus chapter 19. Let me just read to you a quick little section from Leviticus 19 so you can see what the Old Testament law said about it. It says this, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap the field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. So here we get a little glimpse of the heart of God um, where you know, his desire is that those who have are generous with what they have and his desire is that those who are in need would actually do some work for what they need, right? Those, those who have don't need to be stingy. They don't need to be selfish with their supply. And those who are in need didn't need to just kind of default to begging and borrowing. Um, they could have some dignity in their work by going and reaping um, in gleaning in the fields. And so those who were to give, or those who had were to give generously, those who were in need needed to work hard. And Ruth, right here in our story, is working hard by gleaning in the fields and trusting God along the way to provide all that she would need for her and her family. It's just a quick little story, um, personal thing. So my grandmother tells me stories about her upbringing. And in many ways, my grandmother, who's 91 years old now, you know, her life, 90, you know, growing up 90 years ago was just so different than most of us have ever experienced. Uh, she had 11 siblings, okay? Um, her dad was not present much. He um, had abusive seasons in his life. He had mental health issues. He wasn't around all the time, which means that my grandmother's mother had to raise all 11, 12 of those kids by herself for, the most of her, for most of her life. Very difficult. She was poor, didn't have much. Even what she did have, they fell on hard times often. My grandmother's house burned down three different times. And I remember my grandmother telling me about her mother trying to just round up the kids and figure out where are we going to go and what are we going to do. And 
You know, they had to work hard. There were times when my grandmother's mother was pregnant and out working in the cotton fields, picking cotton in order to gain money to provide for the rest of the kids, right? So they were just doing what they had to do to make ends meet. And as hard as that life was, it's part of what really makes me respect my grandmother because she knows what, it's, what it means to work hard and she knows what it means to have to trust God and then see him supply all of her need. And so did Ruth, right? She, she was in need. She went out. She worked hard in the fields. You know, I, um, I told you last week that Ruth was a wonderful book of the Bible. And uh, I said that it's a wonderful love story, but also a, a rich theology text. It's kind of like both rolled into one. Remember that? So in our English Bibles, the book of Ruth is, is placed, you know, after the book of Judges, before the book of 1 Samuel. It's kind of placed along kind of the history stories. Um, but in the Jewish scriptures, the book of Ruth doesn't come after the book of Judges. It actually is joined with the poetic books of the Bible, like Psalms and Song of Solomon and Proverbs. And many people believe that's because the Jews viewed Ruth as a living example of a Proverbs 31 woman, which if you've never read Proverbs 31, it talks about kind of these attributes and characteristics of a godly woman. And so it says how she's willing to work with her hands and she brings food from afar and she buys fields and she plants vineyards and she does not eat the bread of idleness, right? So in other words, part of the characteristics of a godly Proverbs 31 woman is that she's strong and she's hardworking. And I look at my grandmother and I'm like, that's who she is. And I read the scriptures and I'm like, that's who Ruth was. She was willing to go work in the fields. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, so she set out and went and gleaned in the fields after the reapers, and she happened to come to a part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Uh, first of all, a couple things here to mention. First of all, I love how it says that she happened to end up in Boaz's field, right? Like this is, uh, you know, just, just kind of happened, right? This is all part of God's sovereign plan. It might have seemed from human perspective like their happenstance, but really it's ultimately God's providence, right? When my, when my son Gideon was younger, you know, people would from time to time come up to him and say, hey, good luck, buddy, good luck. And he would always look back at them and say this, luck is nothing, right? <laughs> and I'd never been more proud as a dad, right? Like, I guess it's perfect. Um, but, uh, you know, by happenstance, uh, you know, Ruth, Naomi, um, yeah, Ruth ends up coming into Boaz's field. And the fact that, you know, Boaz is from the clan of Limelech, Naomi's dead husband, you know, that's all going to prove to be important down the road in the next couple chapters. But for right now, just a little side note that I want you to pick up on is how Boaz comes to work and he basically greets these uh, fellow blue-collar workers, you know, with the blessing of the Lord. And then they bless him right back, you know, the Lord bless you, the Lord bless you. Like, this is so much different than most blue-collar work environments today, right? I don't know anybody, that's not happening where some of you guys work, right? So there's this moment of blessing in the Lord's name. And they're, honestly, they're eventually, these people are going to be blessed more by the Lord than they can even imagine through Boaz and through Ruth. But what I want you to see right now is we're talking about how Ruth gives us pictures of womanhood, like Proverbs 31, womanhood seen in Ruth. Well, now we start to see godly manhood displayed in Boaz where he's doing what? He's, he's a godly businessman. He's not afraid to acknowledge and honor his God in his workplace and to wish God's blessing upon other people. He, he speaks of the Lord in his workplace, 
right? He speaks with, of the Lord with his mouth because he's holding the Lord in his heart, right? Matthew 12, 34, Jesus said, out of the overflow of our hearts, our mouth will speak. So men in, our, in the room, we've got to be asking ourselves, does, do the things of the Lord ever come out of our heart, out of our mouth? Do they ever come out of our mouth? If he's living, thriving, we're not squelching the, the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts, then God will be talked about wherever we go. We see this in Boaz's life, a man unashamed, unafraid to live out his faith even in his workplace as a business owner. Verse five says this, then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Right, so he sees her. He wants to get more info. Right, this, is like, this is like Boaz's version of Facebook stalking, right? <laughs> Social media creeping. He's just trying to, who is this, right? She's got his attention. It's the first time he's laid eyes on her, right? Guys, I remember the first time I ever laid eyes on my wife, Rachel. Uh, I was a single youth pastor, and we had this youth leader meeting at my house. And one of our youth, youth leaders showed up and came early to the meeting and needed some help bringing things in from her car. So I went out to this youth leader's car, and on the like seat or the front dashboard area of her car was this picture. And it was a picture of this girl, this perfect girl. She had this perfect smile. Her hair was braided. She was uh, holding a paintbrush and had like, like a rugged looking shirt on because she was on a mission trip. I thought to myself, I have just seen a vision of my wife. Here she is right here, right? And so uh, I go into the house and I ask my youth leader friend, like, who is that perfect creation from the Lord that is in that photograph on your car. And she looks at me and she says, uh, slow down, buddy. She's got a boyfriend. I remember thinking to myself, no, she's about to have a new boyfriend. You know, it's uh, me. <laughs> you know? And uh, I saw her, right? And I wanted to know who she was for sure. Right? I was, she was surely going to be my Ruth and I was going to be her Boaz, right? It was just the way it's going to work out. So Boaz asked uh, who Ruth was. He gets his answer here in verse 6. Verse 6 says, The servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather, in the uh, gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So once again, what's being highlighted here is that Ruth is a Moabite, once again, an outsider, a foreigner. But part of her story is that she's going to kind of come into the family. She's going to be accepted. And she, her hardworking, determined, humble character is emphasized as well. It says that she came and she asked if she could glean in the fields. Like, she probably didn't even know that that was part of Jewish law, that she was allowed to do that. So she came, she politely asked. The guy, the servants has let her do that. And so she's been working hard like the entire day, just a short rest. So more of the Proverbs 31 woman on display. So Boaz sees her, he goes to talk to her. And, you know, we talk about first impressions and first interactions based off of outward beauty and that kind of thing. And what we're going to see here as Boaz's first interaction with her unfolds is that it has nothing to do with her outward appearance. He's going to show kindness to her and take an interest in her because of what he's seen in her life, the character of her heart that comes out through the way she lives. So let's see how this all shakes out. Verse 8 and 9. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go glean in another field or leave this one, 
but keep close to my young men. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So pick up what's going on. Like she's a Moabitess, not a family member. He calls her a daughter. She's an outsider. He starts to treat her like one of his own, right? This is Boaz's godliness and mercy and kindness on display. He says, okay, you can glean in my field. You can drink of my water. He says, you can stay with my women and my men won't touch you, which I think is just kind of a funny thing to imagine. Like Boaz rolling up to work in the field, shows up, big boss comes on the scene. He's like, all right, guys, pull together, quick staff meeting. See that girl over there? Listen, I command you not to touch her. Right? He's just setting it, and don't forget, I'm your boss. And if you break this rule, we work in fields and no one will find your body, okay? Like, this is like, <laughs> what happens? Like, it's just, he's just protecting her, right, from the start. So he gives her, what does he do? He gives her the protection and the provision that she needs. So let's look and see what happens in verse 10. It says in verse 10 that she fell on her face. Right? Thankfulness, humility, She's bowing to the ground and she said to him, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? So she knows she's being treated with grace. She knows she's entitled to nothing. She knows that she's a foreigner who could easily be despised and looked down upon or taken advantage of by uh, ungodly men. And yet here, Boaz has given her his favor. Are you guys seeing all the gospel signals here in this text? Like, they're just going to keep popping out to us as we go. Verse 11, but Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. So her reputation has preceded her. Boaz has heard her story. He's heard about her character. Remember the town was kind of buzzing when Naomi arrived with Ruth. He was blessed by the way that she had sacrificed and given up everything that was familiar to her to come and care for Naomi because remember, Naomi and Boaz are relatives, right? So He's thankful that she's made this commitment to care for one of his relatives, so he's aware of her story. He's aware of her commitment to Naomi, but there's something deeper. He also appreciates something else about her. It wasn't just her commitment to her mother-in-law. It was her commitment to God. So he sees that she has done what? She's left the false gods of Moab. And he sees that she's repented, like we talked last week. She's left the land of Moab. She's come to the God of Israel. She had to walk away from all that old life, like many of you had to do when you came to Jesus. You had to turn and repent, leave it behind, and come to follow Jesus. And this is what Ruth has done. Boaz recognizes that. And he recognizes that she's come looking for help. But here's also what Boaz recognizes. He recognizes that ultimately her help comes from God, not from him. So even though he's the one who's given her this provision and this protection, he realizes that ultimately she's going to find her refuge in the shadow of the Lord's wings. And that as God is being her place of refuge, God uses people to help meet other people's needs. And in this case, he's just using Boaz as a man that can help provide and protect her. And so Boaz gives all the glory to God because he deserved it all. See the godliness of of Boaz there. 
He's not trying to take credit for himself. He's just giving it where it belongs to the Lord. Verse 13. Verse 13 says, Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me, spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So again, that thankfulness, that humility on display. says this, And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean among the sheaves and do not reproach her and also pull out some from your bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. Right? So Boaz just continues to treat her incredibly well, right? She's, she's not only welcome to the table and treated as if she belonged there, then she, but she's what? She's fully satisfied and even has some left over to take home to Naomi. He's not only letting her glean and work in his field, but he's, sharing, he's ensuring that his men intentionally pull some of their harvest out and like leave it behind for her. And when she picks it up, like they don't accuse her of stealing and put that back and give it to us. He's saying, no, don't rebuke her. Just, just let her have it. So he's treating her with this extravagant grace, this extravagant kindness. And again, are you guys picking up on the gospel pictures here? coming to the table, bread, wine, being blessed above and beyond. Okay, all the, you should be seeing all the gospel pictures here. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley, working hard again. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, this man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Now that word redeemers is key. It's the key word really in the whole book of Ruth. Um, I told you a little bit about what a redeemer was last week in the whole practice of leveret marriage. Some of your Bibles say that he was a kinsman redeemer. Um, and we're going to talk all about that over the next two chapters. But for right now, I just want you to see the fact that Boaz was a kinsman redeemer in Naomi's family, and that is going to have benefit for both Ruth and Naomi as we move forward. Verse 21 and Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So Naomi's putting this together. She's realizing that there's an opportunity for Ruth to win over Boaz's heart and maybe marry him if he's willing to marry her as a kinsman redeemer. Is that going to happen? Because for, a, for an Israelite man to take on a Moabitess wife would be a, a thing. I don't know. You know, there's this tension here. But she encourages Ruth to stay close to Boaz, which I think is kind of interesting because you know how some moms might be with the girl that used to be married to her son. <laughs> oh, Boaz, he's never going to be a Kilion. <laughs> right? She's not concerned about kind of hanging on and comparing Boaz to her son. She's starting to have a change of heart and encourage uh, Naomi to, 
encourage Ruth to stay close to Boaz. So that's what Ruth does. Look at our last verse, verse 23. So she, Ruth, kept close to the young woman of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. So Boaz's kindness supplied Ruth with the protection and the provision that she needed. She worked with him safely until the end of the harvest season, which means they didn't just have their supply for like that day. They had an ongoing provision, and that meant Ruth and Naomi were able to stay together in the land with all their needs supplied. So God protected them and provided for them through Boaz. Right? And that's the way chapter two ends. So how are we to apply all this? What are we supposed to glean from this text, right? We have, here's, here's where we start. We answer that question by starting with this. Why is the book of Ruth in the Bible? Why is it there? Because on one hand, the Bible does speak to us about manhood and womanhood and marriage and love and romance. And, and of course, this is a love story. And the Jewish scriptures did place this kind of in, in the general uh, vicinity of the poetic texts of scripture. And so I believe, yes, we can absolutely learn some practical lessons about manhood and womanhood and love and marriage and the pursuit of relationships. But on the other hand, I believe that God's got this book of the Bible here for an even bigger and better purpose than that, right? It's, this book is here to, re, to remind us and really reveal to us God's perfect plan of how he was going to redeem the world using sinful and broken people in the process of leading them to Jesus. Now, I'm going to explain all that in just a moment. So let me just leave you with two takeaways. The first will tie into the, the lesser theme of the pursuit of marriage, and the second will tie into the greater theme of God's perfect plan of redemption through Christ. And so let me just give you the first of our two takeaways. Here's the first one. If you're looking to be married, then you've got to know what you're looking for. I know this is about as simple and practical, right? But I believe that like if I was to open my Bible and sit down with my teenage son and daughter and say, hey, as you guys get older and you're looking for a spouse, like we can draw some principles here about what to look for in a godly man and a godly woman and that would be biblically faithful. So this book of Ruth, right, it's a love story. This love story leads up to a marriage and as we walk through this book, we're gonna be able to draw principles there. So I know that there are some of you in this room who would absolutely love to be married. Like most of you are married probably. Many of you aren't. You would love to be. And so when we have these stories about people like Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, you know, you connect with them because you're looking for a spouse. So let me just take a moment to speak pastorally to you for just a second. Um, I have to say, like, I, I think that pursuing a marriage in today's culture would be incredibly difficult. And I think it would be incredibly more difficult to be a Christian pursuing marriage in today's culture. Because our culture has strayed so far away from God's design for marriage, biblical manhood, womanhood, marriage and family. It, it's strayed so far away that things just become increasingly complex and difficult. We can't figure out what a man is or a woman is, which means we have no idea what manhood and womanhood is which means we really won't know what it's like for a man to live as a husband and a wife to live as 
uh, and a woman to live as a wife according to God's design. So we're confused, right? We, we end up having these, this big misunderstanding based on our culture about God's design for marriage and how it should work. And it leads us to live in this culture where marriages continue to struggle and marriages continue to fall apart. And so imagine now people are growing up in this, you know, cultural malaise of just kind of brokenness when it comes to marriage. So all these people grow up in this culture and what's going to happen? They're going to associate marriage with pain and brokenness and difficulty. And so more and more people are afraid of marriage. They avoid marriage. And even when they do want to get married and get married, people often enter into marriage with a massive misunderstanding. So then they leave their marriages and makes more people hurt in the process, which makes more people avoid marriage and the cycle just continues, right? So all this to say, like, it would be incredibly hard to be a person in pursuit of marriage in today's culture. So here's what we have to understand. If you do marriage the way our culture does, then your marriage will probably go the way our culture goes. Our culture is broken. If you do marriage the way the culture does, your marriage will probably go the way of brokenness like the culture. But praise God, he has given us a better way of marriage. And the first thing well, maybe not the first thing, but one of the most foundational things that we learn through the scriptures pertaining to marriage is this. It's that marriage isn't everything. The Lord is. Marriage isn't everything. In fact, as we read scriptures, Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Jesus actually seems to elevate the position of singleness, right? So God may call some of you into singleness and if he calls you in, into singleness, then in his providence and in his sovereignty, that will be a good thing and he will prove himself to be enough for you. He will be enough for you in your 20s. He will be enough for you in your 80s. He will be enough for you if you've never been married. He will be enough for you if you used to be married. He will be enough because your identity as a follower of Jesus does not rest on another man or another woman. It rests in him. Amen, Secure in him. He is enough and he will prove himself to be enough. But for many of you, so for many of you, or at least some of you, maybe the Lord may call you into singleness, but the vast majority who are uh, unmarried probably want to be married. And if you're looking to be married, then this is a good reminder from the book of Ruth. Like we need to, we need to look toward marriage God's way. We need to look for go what God wants us to want. So men in the room who are unmarried, don't just look for any woman. Don't just take any cute girl or interesting girl who just comes your way. Right? That's, a, right? That's a result of either your total like, insecurity and inability to, to really be secure in Christ or it's just a, a following of your flesh. Right? If you just go for anyone, you, you really need to be thinking about looking for what the Bible calls you to look for. Like a, a noble woman is what Boaz calls Ruth later in chapter 3, verse 11. So guys in the room who aren't married, don't just take any woman. Look for a godly woman. Look for a woman who's committed to the Lord, committed to his people. Look for a woman who will never perfectly match up to Proverbs chapter 31, but my goodness, she's trying. Right? She's pursuing with zeal the Lord and his call on her life. She's willing to work hard. She understands that beauty is fleeting and she loves her family. You know, look for that Ruth type woman. 
which means ladies in the room like who aren't married, like you need to be that type of Ruth type woman. So women, in the same way, don't just look for any man who shows you attention and speaks to you kindly and might be really good looking or whatever. Like just, don't just take any man. Look for a worthy man, which is what is, uh, Boaz is called in chapter two, verse one. Look for a man who knows God and is pursuing godly character in his life and isn't afraid to speak about God in his, worth, in his workplace and isn't ashamed to protect you from harm and provide for your needs. A man who will praise the Lord with you like Boaz does with Ruth in this text, right? Look for a Boaz type man and men, you need to be a Boaz type man. And here's why. Because Boaz in this text actually is ultimately pointing us to Jesus. Like Jesus Christ hadn't yet been born So it's not like Boaz is living his day-by-day life thinking, I need to be like Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Like, none of that's happening. But in this text, we see this character and this biblical manhood coming out of Boaz. And ultimately, what we get from Boaz are these glimpses into these wonderful pictures of Jesus. I mean, Boaz, think about this. Boaz took notice of Ruth, although she was a sinful outsider. Praise God, Jesus took notice of us when we were sinful outsiders away from the family of God. Boaz protected Ruth and kept her from those who would harm her body. Praise God, Jesus takes it a step further and protects us from the one who would want to kill our soul and send it to hell. Boaz provided for Ruth, giving her all she needed and so much more. Jesus, praise be to God, has provided for our greatest need, the forgiveness of our sins, and he's lavished on us, you know, an abundance of heavenly blessings. Boaz welcomed Ruth to sit at his table for the bread and the wine, and Jesus invites us who have come to know him to come to his table for the bread and the cup where we remember him crucified for our sins. Boaz points to Jesus. And in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see how Boaz redeems Ruth, just like Jesus redeems us. And it's all going to point back to Jesus, which leads to the second takeaway which is really kind of the bigger point, right? The first point was if you're looking to get married, know what you're looking for. But here's the second more important point. No matter what you're looking for, remember that your happenstance is really God's providence. Remember that your happenstance right now, whatever you're looking for in life, whatever you feel like you need, whatever that longing of your heart is, you know, remember that your happenstance is really God's providence because the book of Ruth, it's really about people looking for something, right? There's a family looking for food at the beginning. Then there's widows looking for a place to live. And then there's Naomi, who's bitter, looking for joy and hope. And then there's Ruth looking for a husband, right? And and here in chapter two, she's looking for food. And I love how as she's looking for food, verse three says that Ruth happened to end up in Boaz's field. So you and I, we could read this text. And one way we could read it would be to say, look, you know, here it is in the Bible, like, God's not sovereign. Things just kind of happen. She just so happened. See, she just ended up in the field. And, and so, you know, bad things just happened to certain people. Like, you know, Naomi lost her husband and Ruth and Orpah lost their husband. So bad things kind of happen. And then good things just, they just kind of happen. She ends up in the field and meets a nice guy. So that's one way you could look at it. You could look at it and say, well, things just happen. Or you could read that verse and say, God made it happen. 
Because as we see the story unfold in the book of Ruth, here's what's happened. Ruth just so happened to be a Moabite who married an Israelite. And she just so happened to become a widow alongside her Israelite mother-in-law. And as a Jewish, as a non-Jewish outsider, she just so happened to end up in Bethlehem, where she just so happened to end up in Boaz Field, who just so happened to have a non-Jewish mother. Like maybe this is kind of a new little point I didn't even touch on earlier, but you guys, as you study scripture, you start to understand like Boaz had a non-Jewish mom. You know what her name was? Her name was Rahab. When you read the genealogy of Boaz in the book of Matthew chapter 1, you see that Boaz's mother was named Rahab, who was not only a non-Jew, she was a prostitute, who ended up being saved and spared by God, apparently committed herself to the Lord, married an Israelite man. They gave birth to a son named Boaz. So Boaz just so happened to be the kind of man who would show care to outsiders just like the people showed to his mama. And we'll see in the next couple weeks that they just so happened to get married and they just so happened to have children who have children who have children until one of them just so happens to be Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? None of this just happened. God made it happen. So whatever circumstance you find yourself in today, like no matter what you're looking for, longing for, whatever you're hoping comes in your life, whatever you're really seeking out, here's the point. Keep trusting our providential God in your neediness, in your brokenness, in your bitterness, in your loneliness, whatever it is, keep trusting the providence of God. Because in his providence, think about this. He just so happens to have you here today. And he just so happens to have you listening to this portion of his word. And maybe he just so happens to want to change your life. Which he would radically do if you come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. What seems like happenstance in our lives is really providence from God. So the truth today, guys, is that we're all looking for something be it a relationship, a husband, a wife, be it provision, we're looking for the next job or the next way, we're stepping our career, whatever it is, be it protection, we find ourselves in a broken, vulnerable state in our life and we're really in a spot where harm could come our way, so we're looking for protection. You know, we're all looking for something. But here's the point of the book of Ruth. No matter what you just so happen to be looking for, God just so happens to be looking for you. And he's working everything out so that like Ruth, you will leave your Moab and come to him and take shelter in his wings and you will find him to be the redeemer of your life. That's why he sent Jesus to redeem sinners, make them his own. So, yes, look for that godly spouse. And yes, look for whatever else you seem to be needing in life right now. But as you're looking, remember, God is looking for you. And all of your life's happenstance is really God's providence. So, he wants you to keep looking until you look to the one 
who's been looking for you all along. Lord, thank you for this time to go through your word together. And I praise you, Lord, for the fact that you are so, uh, you are so unlike us. We are short-term, in-the-moment thinkers. We you have, but yet you, Lord, have this grand perspective, perfect, all-powerful, sovereignly working it out for wonderful purposes. And so, Lord, we come in as people who are weak and our perspective is limited and life is hard because we are unlike you. We don't know the end from the beginning. And so, Lord, bear with us in our weakness as we come and, and we struggle sometimes. I pray specifically for those who are dealing with bitterness coming into this room, they, they start to find themselves bitter at you. Pray that they would help, that you would help them through your Holy Spirit to praise you as their God of providence. I pray for those in this room who are dealing with loneliness. They would love to be married. I pray that you would help them find their satisfaction in you and their identity in you and they would look to you as the God of providence. I pray, Lord, for those who are coming into this room and Life has just been difficult and they, they are longing for protection or provision. Lord, I pray that they would see your hand at work in due course, even if they can't see it right now, and that they would trust that you indeed are the God of providence. And Lord, we remember today that as we look for whatever we feel like we need, that we praise you that you have been looking out for us all along. We thank you for Jesus who redeems us and saves our lives from the pit. It's in his name we pray, amen.